Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. I confess, I'm a little froggy this morning, so hopefully I will get through this without having any voice loss. Um, But I'm really glad to see you all. I hope you had a nice little break last week from me. Um, I was leading a trip to Israel. We took 24 kids and their parents over to Israel and Jordan, and we didn't lose anybody. Nobody broke a bone. It was great. And so it was, it was really fun. Um, and even though we just finished that pilgrimage, I've got another to announce to you. Um, I, you may have seen this in the Archangel, but we're going to be leading one next year that is anchored by the Passion Play in Oberammergau. And for those of you who don't know about this, Oberammergau is a little town in southern Germany, and back during the Black Plague, they prayed for their town to be spared, and then when their town was, relatively speaking, spared, um, they decided they were going to praise God in a grand way. And so every 10 years, the entire town shuts down for about six months, and they do a passion play that takes the entire day to perform. And so it's a real privilege for the people who live in that town. You have to be a resident of the town for a minimum of 20 years before you get to be in the play itself. And so it's a really neat thing. It's one of those crazy, weird, once-in-a-lifetime kind of experiences. And I was just saying over here that my grandparents went in 1990 and were nuts over it. And so I've kind of always heard about it. And when I realized that it was coming up, I decided, why not? Let's take a trip. And so it sold out in 2017, um, the tickets. So I've had these tickets for almost two years already in order for us to get in on that day. And so that's the anchor of the trip. We are going to be looking at a number of other cities. We're going to start in Budapest, go to Prague, Vienna, Oberammergau, and Berlin as a look at Christianity in the 20th century and the ways in which the church did and did not respond to the rise of hate and fascism. And it fascinates me to look at this stuff. I, in my research, I just learned about a tax that the country of Germany still has for people who are either Protestant or Roman Catholic. So just like any other kind of payroll tax or something like that, you get taxed whether if you are a member of one of those churches. And so if you are a Roman Catholic in Germany, there's an 8% tax that you pay that goes directly to the Vatican. And in 2018, or 17, 17 or 18, I'm not sure which year it was, that amounted to over $6 billion that went straight to the Vatican. Do you know why that tax exists? Because the Pope was taking issue with Hitler before World War II, and they struck a deal to tax the people of Germany if the Pope would stay quiet about some of the stuff that they were doing in Germany, right? I mean, I know. And so those little moments like that, we're going to be looking at the ways in which the church. Now, that being said, obviously people have realized that was not a good idea. And so we're going to be looking at the ways in which that happened all over Europe in different ways, both around World War II and World War I as a means of trying to identify today what are some good things and what are some mistakes that the church makes today just out of convenience or out of a lack of wanting to be um, uh, 
get into conflict of some kind and try to be nice and peaceful and those sorts of things. It's, you know, we do some things like that today. Of course, it may not be quite that grossly wrong, but we always make little judgments about what we will or won't do, and it's a sliding scale, and we don't want to necessarily be completely hard-nosed about every single thing, but how do we then discern what is reasonable and what ultimately undermines our faith and what we hold most dear. And so I'm really excited about it. We've got these brochures at both doors. And so if you are interested, grab one. We have an information session tomorrow night in the parlor, just 5.30 to 6.15. It's gonna be just an easy Q&A talking about some of the ideas. Registration for this opens April 1st. That's quick, but what I want to make sure you all know is if you're interested, do ask me questions and vet some ideas because the last two trips I've done have sold out in the first day. In fact, there were some families who wanted to go on the Holy Land trip we just went on who showed up at 9.30 when registration opened at nine and it was already full. So not that this one will do that, but I don't know. And so just want to make sure that you all know about this because it's very possible that that first day, we can only take 40 people. So it's basically because everyone needs to be able to get on one bus. I mean, that's really all it is. And I only have 45 tickets to the Passion Play. So, and because they've already sold out, I can't get any more. So it's going to be a, that's not a small amount of people. I mean, 45 people is still a meaningful number of people, but when it comes to a church this big, that's a very small group. So take a look, grab the brochure. If you've got questions, we've got the information session tomorrow night, and if you can't make it to the info session tomorrow night, just shoot me an email, you know where I am. Speaking of email, I have, and some of the other staff members at the church have had people, algorithms, they're probably just robots, creating email addresses and our names and sending out to people requesting help for those in need, which is really just a scam for them to get money. Just wanna make sure you know, first, I'm never gonna ask you for money over email. I do that in person. Okay, <laughs> so don't worry about that. If, I will never ask you for iTunes gift cards or something like that to help people. So, so don't worry about that. Um, but secondly, if you ever receive an email from someone at the church and you think that it might be spam, check the actual address. If it is not an at stmichael.org address, it is not from us. No one here will ever email you about church business from their personal email address. They will not. And these people are very creative. You know, lots of people think, oh, you've been hacked. We've not been hacked. We are having people create mimic email addresses in our names. And so it looks like it could theoretically be real. Um, you know, on the one hand, I'm very impressed that people have written algorithms that can do this. On the other hand, I don't want you to be duped. So if it's not at stmichael.org, it is not from us. So just ignore it. If you want to let me know what happened, that's great. But do not please send gift cards to help the needy. That's not what we do. So... That's all for that. Let's open with prayer and we'll jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us back together again today. And we ask that you bless our time, open our hearts and minds 
so that your spirit may speak to us and through us to help heal our broken world. We ask especially for prayers for all those we hold in our hearts today, those who need your healing touch. We pray especially today for Ralph and for Jane. Lord, bless all of those we hold in our hearts and minds, those who cannot be here with us today. May they all feel your presence and be filled with your peace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are on chapter 22. I sure hope we are. March 20th. Yep. We are on chapter 22. The purple bookmarks are still around at both doors. And if you are new today, I actually do see a couple new faces. Please do sign up for our email list so that we can make sure just in case something changes that you are notified as quickly as possible of those changes. But we've got a schedule on these bookmarks. The only week that we were gonna skip this entire spring was last week, and so we're consistent all the way through. That includes Holy Week. We will meet for Bible study on Holy Wednesday. Um, you might see that and think that I'm crazy, but I'm not. We're gonna have Bible study on Holy Week. Why not? So purple schedule is at the doors. Make sure you grab one, stick them in your Bibles so that you can stay with us as we go on. So today we are looking at chapter 22 of Acts. Chapter 22 is a decently easy chapter. We're not moving around. Um, Paul has been arrested. Paul returned to Jerusalem, has been arrested there, and all of chapter 22 is Paul's immediate response to and the crowd's response to his arrest in that moment. So no traveling, not very many people involved. It's more so Paul's statement of defense. And so we're gonna break that up into a few different sections. So the first, we're gonna look at his actual defense, and I'm gonna break that into two parts, part one and part two. Secondly, the crowd's response. And then third, his citizenship. Citizenship. Can't spell citizenship while I'm talking. So chapter 22, first two big parts deal with Paul's defense. So let's make sure we're all on the same page as how we got here. So Paul has taken three missionary journeys. Those missionary journeys have created more interest that has concerned more of the Jewish leadership about what Paul is doing. So as Paul returns from his third missionary journey, he wants to get to Jerusalem for the Passover and as he goes to Jerusalem, he's greeted by James, the brother of Jesus, who is still over the church in Jerusalem. And as we probably would expect, James and the church in Jerusalem have uh, mm, turned down the volume of their evangelism such that they are not explicitly annoying the Jewish leadership in that city. Now, interestingly, we just talked about how we either kind of can dial up or down our religious fervor based on our political reality, and James has sort of done that. James and the group in Jerusalem have been a little less forthright in their evangelism than perhaps Paul and his companions have been because Jerusalem is a, is a hot city. Jerusalem's not going to take kindly to people who are too aggressive in their evangelism. And so they're there praying, but perhaps they haven't been quite as forthright 
in telling the story of Jesus so that the Jewish leadership has sort of left them alone. They don't like them, but they've not really bothered with them. Paul's arrival changes that. And Paul's arrival concerns James enough that James encourages Paul to go through all the ritualistic cleansing that new Jews should do in order to show that he's still really Jewish. And that might sound a little odd to us because obviously Paul is one of the you know, fathers of Christianity. But at the time, people are still not seeing this as a new religion. They're really seeing this as a fulfillment of Judaism. So for the Jews, it's a fulfillment. For the non-Jews, the Gentiles, it's bringing them into the fold. They're still not interested in doing something new. They're interested in helping to fulfill and complete the work that God started way back when that was being expressed through the Jewish people at that moment. Because of that, Paul is a threat. And so when Paul shows up, even though he goes through all of the ritual cleansing, he goes to the temple to pray, he's not convinced those Jews that he is somehow now a friend. They still see him as a potential threat. So are we clear up to that point how we got to this, to today? Yeah? So Paul is not hiding. He's going to the temple to pray. And on one of those days that he goes to the temple to pray, he is arrested. Paul's arrest is one that is driven by the crowd. So the crowd is cheering for Paul's arrest in a way. And as the tribune, the Roman authority who arrests Paul... Paul turns to the tribune and says, can I please address the people? This is the very end of chapter 21, where I said we're not going to look at the last few verses of chapter 21 because it really goes into 22. Paul turns to the tribune and says, can I please address the crowd? Paul's address to the crowd is approved because Paul shows that he is a learned person. So the very end of chapter 21, what we get is Paul turns to the tribune, and as he speaks, the tribune is surprised that he's speaking Greek. The tribune likely thought he was a rabble-rouser, some kind of, um, what might I say, just, just a general troublemaker not to really concern about. But Paul turns and speaks Greek to this tribune, and he kind of perks up and says, well, you're obviously not just another rabble-rouser. You're someone different. And so when Paul says, can I please address the, the crowd, I think what happens for the tribune in that moment is he realizes that maybe this guy is not perhaps the bad guy everyone thinks he is. And so he says, yes, go ahead. And Paul waves his hand, silences the crowd, and begins to address his defense. So this is the moment that Paul has to perhaps try and turn the crowd from being against him to being for him. Now, that's a relatively optimistic thing to think, but that's where Paul is. So what I want to do is look at the way in which Paul provides his defense to the crowd. Now, this is not the first time we've heard Paul's story. We know Paul's story. And so, in a literary way, we should probably ask the question, why would Luke use valuable real estate telling us what we already know? I think the obvious answer, well, either Luke is a bad editor, which I don't think is the case, or Luke wants us to really hear 
Paul's story. So even though we sort of know this, I want to step through what Paul says because Luke thinks it's important, and so we probably should too. So let's turn to verse 3 of chapter 22. As Paul begins to address the crowd. So Paul says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. So let's pause there. Paul has said, I'm from Tarsus, which is, he had just said Tarsus is an important city. Nah, Tarsus is not nothing. Tarsus is also not as important as cities go, but the Tribune and the people would have heard of Tarsus. So even though he was born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem. He was educated at the feet of really the great Jewish scholar of the day. And as I've noted weeks ago, Gamaliel was, is today still considered one of the greatest Jewish scholars ever. So not only was he great at that time, he continued to be considered one of the greatest ever. So Paul claims his Jewishness. He's a Jew raised by the best Jewish rabbi of the day and zealous for God just as they are. Paul here has compassion for the crowd. He knows that they are zealous in their faith, which is why they're trying to get rid of him. And Paul wants to say, I got it, I understand because I was just like you. So let's keep going. Verse four, I persecuted this way, capital W. That means the followers of Jesus. I persecuted this way up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison as the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. From them, I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus and I went there in order to bind those who were there and to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. So we'll pause there. So Paul says, I am really Jewish and I am a zealous Jew. I am so zealous and such a good Jew that I was the leader of the persecution against these Jesus followers. So much so that I was asked to travel to other cities and find people who were trying to follow Jesus in order to punish them for being wrong. And where does he name? Damascus. So you may know what's coming next. Verse six, while I was on my way to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? Then he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This is an interesting way to go about a defense. I want to note that the defense here is for, I don't care if it makes noise. <laughs> Babies are great. Um, the defense here is anchored in this idea that the zealot Jews, those who were really zealous, believed that God would give revelation they did not believe God was quiet. They were listening for God. And what Paul says here is, a, is sort of approaching a technique of God gave me a revelation. And you know that revelations can be real. And so let me tell you what God did for me. 
because I'm a good Jew persecuting the people who are following Jesus, but God's revelation came to me, and this is what God said. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Continue on in verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I asked, what am I to do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told everything that has been assigned you to do. So Paul claims that he's receiving a legitimate, real revelation. And so he's going to follow this revelation to find out where it leads. That's the first section of Paul's defense. So I'm a good Jew. I'm a really smart Jew. I persecuted the Christians, but received a revelation that was real. That's part one. Any questions about how he set this up before we pivot into part two? Yes. Oh, sure. So that's a good note. I, I didn't mention that. When Paul's arrested by the tribune, he speaks in Greek. The tribune perks up and says, oh, you must be a learned person. When Paul turns and addresses the crowd, he's speaking to them in Hebrew. It may have been Aramaic. Um, there's a note that it could have been that because people didn't necessarily speak in Hebrew. Um, they really talked to each other in Aramaic. So it, it could be either. But it is important to note that Paul is impressive, right? He is switching between languages with ease and fluidity. So he's obviously an educated person. And so as he's addressing the crowd, he gets their attention because he's telling them implicitly that he's like them. He's not using some other tongue. He's using the language of their faith. And he's telling them the story through that language, which comforts them and perhaps tries to warm them up a little bit. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? Gamaliel? Yes. So Gamaliel is, is a definite name drop. So he, would, he was one of the high priests. He was a teacher, a rabbi, and he would have been perceived even at that point to be just about the greatest living rabbi. And so Paul's dropping his name in order to make sure everyone knows that he knows his stuff, right? It's kind of like when you drop the name of where you went to college or something like that. You don't do that if your college is unknown, right? You do that if your college is known. The, why do you even say it, right? You're not really, most people really aren't trying to make a nice connection. They're really trying to say, I'm pretty awesome. That's usually, that's usually what people mean when they drop the name of their college. And so it's similar in this way that yeah, you know that's funny because that's what people do. You know, I roll my eyes all the time like, yeah, yeah, you're special. So it's kind of like hearing, I equate this to hearing sermons. You ever heard sermons where you think, I, I think the person really just wants you to know they're smart because whatever they're saying is so opaque and so confusing, but it's using big words, words that obviously you don't really even understand, but gosh, they must because they're using them. They are so smart. That is a tragic way to preach because you don't give anybody anything except what, that they think you're smart? This is one of those moments, though, where Paul is trying to claim that he is smart, 
Gamaliel's not going to take dumb students. And so if Paul was one of his students, Paul's legit. And he's trying to make that claim to these Jews because most of the Jews in that crowd are going to think, well, dang, I, I wasn't that well-educated. And that's really what he's trying to do is say, I know my stuff. Not all of the people in Jerusalem, many of the people in the Jerusalem church were uneducated Jews, right? Think about all of Jesus, almost all of Jesus' disciples are uneducated Jews, good people. They're not like Paul. That was the big difference between someone like Peter and, and Paul. Peter, good guy, trusted Jesus. It was totally authentic, not well-educated. Paul is very different. Paul is first class, very intelligent, can claim every bit of authenticity that any of the other Jews can, and still found truth in Jesus. That's Paul's mm, currency. And that's what he's really trying to make sure the crowd knows. Because they may have only heard about this guy who's disturbing the peace. Paul has a moment where he can say, I'm not just upsetting you. I'm doing something that's real. And you can trust me because I know. And the clergy and I have had this conversation here. One of the reasons that there are many good reasons to do God's story this year, which is kind of teaching the whole Bible. Obviously, one good reason is we need to know it, right? As a teacher, preacher, whomever, I cannot explain to you who David is every time I want to reference David. I really need you to know David was a king. David lived after Moses and before Jesus. Like, I just need you to know even that much. And I'm looking out there and people are like, huh, David lived after, I know, it's okay. Um, but we need, to, we need to know that kind of thing because it, it is difficult to give all of this context in order to then make a point. We don't have enough time. And so it's important that we know the scripture in order to make those kind of connections. Here's the other thing that's really important. You need to know that we know the Bible as priests. Because most of the time, if people disagree with decisions that are made, they will pull out a line of scripture that somebody somewhere has told them, or they saw on Facebook, or on a coffee mug, or a t-shirt, or whatever. And it's not that that doesn't exist, right? Those verses, I mean, I'm, I guess people could make them up, but we're going to go with the Bible verse you saw on the coffee mug is a real Bible verse. But what's the context, and who wrote it, and when did they write it, and why did they write it, and how does that connect with the big arc of God's salvation story? You can't get that from eight words on a coffee mug. And although that sounds funny, I want you to have the confidence that we actually do know this stuff. You cannot make that assumption about clergy, okay? So don't. We should prove it to you. And that's one of the reasons that we do things like this, is that we need to prove to you we do know what we're talking about. Because at some point, we will almost certainly do something you don't really like. And I want for your starting place to be, but I trust that they know, know something I don't know. So I want to find out why they think this way, right? That is very different than just starting from... I disagree. I disagree does not, is not helpful, 
I want us to start from, I trust they know something. And so I want to know why they think this way. Because if we can seek understanding, it doesn't mean we, we agree. I say all the time to my staff, I'm not looking for agreement all the time, but I am looking for alignment. You can't get alignment as a group if you don't trust that the people have good intention and know what they're talking about. And so Paul, in that way, is looking at this crowd that really wants him dead and saying a similar thing. I know what I'm talking about, so let me at least tell you why it is I think this way. All right, any other questions or thoughts? Part two of Paul's defense is really him telling the story of his ministry. So let's look at verse 12. It starts with that continued conversion. A certain Ananias, who was a devout man according to the law and well-spoken by all the Jews living there, came to me, so this is in Damascus, and standing beside me, he said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I regained my sight and saw him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear his own voice, for you will be his witness to all the world of what you have seen and heard. So he's telling the story of his revelation, shocking him, blinding him, knocking him over. And then he goes on to Damascus and he is cleansed. He is healed because of God. And not just because God doesn't want him to be blind, but because God wants him to actually see the truth and be the evangelist that the world needs. Skipping on ahead, verse 17. After I'd returned to Jerusalem and while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw Jesus saying to me, hurry up and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And while the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I myself was standing by, approving and keeping the coats of those who killed him. Then he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Again, just in case people had missed it, Paul's claiming his knowledge of Judaism is first rate and that he was doing the persecuting of the Christ followers that the Jewish leadership wanted him to do and doing it really well. He even says, I held everyone's coat while they were stoning Stephen, which I've always thought is a really weird thing to say, but it's said twice in Acts where Paul holds everyone's coat. So like, we need to kill this man. Will you hold my coat? And that's what Paul does. And so he tacitly approves, if not explicitly approves, of Stephen's stoning because he was misled as a follower of Jesus. So Paul, again, claims that he's got all of the authenticity of everyone in the crowd. He gets where they are. And yet, God comes to him and says, I've got something better for you. But Paul says at the very end of this defense, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Dang, he just had to say Gentiles, didn't he? Because that's not going to go over well with the crowd. The crowd had been listening so well and likely beginning to 
follow Paul a little bit. But then Paul exposes God's inclusion. Not okay. One step too far. The crowd then turns on him. So we're going to go to this numbered second part of this chapter where the crowd turns against Paul again. So they've been listening, and even though they had reacted with venom at first, they had quieted down to hear what Paul had to say. Look at verse 22. Up to this point, they listened to him, but then they shouted, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And while they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the tribune directed that he was to be brought into the barracks and ordered him to be examined by flogging to find out the reason for this outcry against him. This is a very interesting moment. The tribune, remember, Roman, has been standing there this whole time. Arrest the guy the crowd thinks is causing trouble. This guy speaks to him in Greek. The tribune thinks, well, maybe this is not the guy they're thinking that they're looking for. This seems like a good guy, an intelligent, well-educated person. And so the tribune lets him address the crowd, and he's speaking eloquently to the crowd for a bit, and then the crowd turns on him again. And the tribune is likely confused. Why? Why do people not like this guy? And so he sends him to be beaten and interrogated to get the truth out of him. That's what this means. He's sending Paul away so that he can be beaten. And Paul, who has kept the ace up his sleeve up to this point, decides that it's time to use it. So as we, before we get to that point, I think it's interesting to ask the question, does Paul expect the crowd to react this way? Romans was written just before this moment, historically speaking. Now, we know that Acts was written after all this stuff happened. Paul wrote all of his letters that in the order of the books of the New Testament, the letters come after Acts. But Paul historically actually wrote those letters before Acts was written because they were written while he was doing this ministry. Does that make sense? I don't know if I said it very clearly, but Acts is recalling all the stuff that Paul did, including writing those letters. So in Romans that was written only weeks before this actual historic moment, this is what Paul writes. This is, don't turn to it, but this is Romans chapter 10. I can testify that, I, that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Paul is talking about the Jewish people. They have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul is saying in the letter to the Romans, the Jews are trying, but they've missed this new revelation of God. And so it's not that they're bad people, but they have established their own righteousness in such a way that they are almost blind to see God's new revelation. Let me say that in a different way. They are powerful. They have created a power structure around them that makes them even more powerful. This new revelation of God through Jesus undoes their power structure. 
Now, how many people do you know who, when they have extreme power, readily and easily give that up for some new idea? Anybody? Anybody? Right. That does not happen. And so Paul is sympathetic to what's going on with the Jewish people because he says they did this for their own good. And because of that, they're blind to this new revelation. And it's important for us to know what's in Paul's head. It's also important for us to be careful about how this sort of idea of Judaism is articulated. It is very easy, in fact, it has been done many, many times, for us to, us as Christian people, to see the Jews as mistaken, or worse, to see the Jews as misguided, or worse, to see them as a problem, because we have discovered the truth, and they are holding us back. That can be twisted into something that becomes Holocaust. So I want us to know what Paul thinks, and I want us to understand how we fit in the theological shift that's being made. But I also want us to have very clear boundaries and sensitivity around how we articulate this, because if we articulate something in a very simple way, like they have it wrong, we have it right, that's a slippery slope into something that becomes judgmental and even hateful. That being said, I do think that Jesus' revelation is right. And so we have to hold these things very sensitively in tension together. And I think Paul could be more sensitive sometimes. Now, he's energetic, and he's, it's fine, but we can make sure that we understand his evangelical zeal in a way that doesn't ultimately lead to hurting anyone else. Okay, that's the end of the crowd turning on him. Questions or thoughts before we get into his citizenship? Yes, ma'am? Always. Good question. Question is, would it be right for us to believe that Paul's life is somehow predetermined or preordained, planned out by God, because it does seem to mimic in a way what happened to Jesus? right? Arrested by a crowd, there's a defense, there's a trial, there's an ultimate execution. It would be easy for us to say, Jesus did this in Jerusalem. Paul does this in Rome. And so what we see is the extension, right? It, why isn't Paul killed in Rome? I mean, I'm sorry, why isn't Paul killed in Jerusalem? Paul could be killed in Rome in order to show that God's inclusion is the whole world now. It's not just about the Jewish people. It's for everyone. That kind of thinking, I have a problem with that thinking in a few different ways. The first is, and you've heard me say this before, 
I don't, I think it's problematic. <laughs> I was going to say I don't believe, which I don't believe, but I'm going to say it in a different way. I think it's problematic that God has a plan for every single thing that happens. Mm, it can be comforting. It may feel good. I think there are friends of ours who absolutely believe that that is true. I think it's problematic when serious bad stuff happens to good people, right? I mean, the old question, why do bad things happen to good people? If, in fact, God plans bad things happening to good people, man, that, that does not seem like the God we see in the Gospels. Um, that God would will pain onto people, I think it causes some trouble. Now, on the flip side of that, can God stop it? Sure. Which means God doesn't when those painful things happen. And so part of what we wrestle with is God does not create pain or evil or bad. Yet, pain and evil and bad stuff are real. How then, if God does not create that, but allows it, where does it come from? And why does God allow it? So my answer is that it comes from our decision to break from God. Now that's articulated in the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Now you've also heard me say, I don't believe that's a historic account of two people in a garden somewhere. And if you haven't heard me say that, then sorry if I just hurt you. Um, I think that the stories in Genesis are true, but not historic. I think that those stories, and you can say maybe before Abraham, they communicate a truth about God and humanity, but they're not meant to be scientifically historic stories that explain to us the tangible reality of the world, right? So the creation story in seven days, did God actually do that in seven days such that we are meant to ignore archeology span and science and all the other stuff? No, 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 because the point of that is not to explain the scientific reality of the world. The point of that story is to show we are loved. We are created out of love and we are meant to love in return. That's the point of that story and that is true. Now, how all that happened was never the intent of the storytellers. It was meant for us to know that God's with us and God does not let us go. But as we continue that story, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they're cast out of the garden, and then what does God say? You're gonna have to work the land. You're gonna have pain and childbirth. Stuff's not gonna be easy for you anymore. Why would they tell the story that way? Well, because they're trying to explain why life is hard. Everyone there knew life was hard. Everyone had lost someone they'd loved. Everyone had dealt with pain. And so if God is real and yet life is hard, how did it get here? Well, it's because we turned away from God. And so as the story goes on, what Jesus really is saying to us is not that we have to say magic words and have the sprinkle of the, the, the fairy dust. What Jesus is really saying is, turn back toward God. And by the way, that's what all the prophets have said all the way through the Old Testament, right? Every prophet along the way says, turn back to God. 
Turn back to God. You've turned away from God, turn back to God. That's what all the stories are. And Jesus comes in this big exclamation point to say, very truly turn back to God. That's how we heal the brokenness. That's how we bring about the kingdom of God on earth is by us turning toward God. Now, we're still human, and we are imperfect, and none of us will do this well enough. That's not the point. The point is to try. And so ultimately, do we believe that Paul's life and ultimate death was predetermined by God? I say no, because what we do is not predetermined. God's with us, God's helping us, but the decisions we make in our life, to be good or not, to be helpful or not, to love or not, those are ours. God's given us a model, and God calls us constantly, but we ultimately get the choice to either do something holy or not. And hopefully when we choose not to do something holy, we feel a little bad about it, right? I mean, we feel, I, I know that's, that's like the currency of the whole Roman Catholic Church, right? Guilt. I've always said Episcopalians need more guilt because I find Episcopalians are far too confident that God loves them all the time. You know, that's true, but man, it would be so much easier if y'all thought just a little bit like God was disappointed, right? Episcopalians are so confident God's just happy all the time. Um, I, I say regularly, you know, my children think God loves them, period, because they were raised in the Episcopal Church. That is so great. And I would really like for people to feel bad sometimes, too, when they make decisions that really aren't that great. And we don't feel bad quite enough, in my opinion, but that's okay. That's a different day. So any other questions or thoughts before we get on with it? I'm a sucker for a tangent. Okay, so let's look at Paul has been arrested. He's addressed the crowd. He has tried to get them to change their mind. They react a second time, calling for his death. The tribune sends him to be flogged, to beat the truth out of him. Paul is bound and about to be beaten. And then he says this, verse 25. When they had tied him up, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And the tribune came and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. Verse 29, immediately those who were about to examine him drew back from him. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Oh, man. Paul just pulled the ultimate ace out of his sleeve. The tribune, the centurion, those Roman uh, representatives there in Jerusalem operate differently when they're dealing with people who are not Roman citizens. They sort of have carte blanche to do whatever. Now, they don't, they don't often abuse that. They certainly do sometimes. But Romans tended to govern such that do whatever you want so long as you don't disturb the peace or undermine Rome. Otherwise, pay your taxes, go about your business. They skewed off that from time to time. But mostly, 
they did not abuse that power. In this situation, they were about to beat the truth out of Paul, who was, as he claims, uncondemned. That is true. He's been arrested and accused, but he's had no trial. He's not been condemned of anything, and yet they were still going to beat him. And when Paul, now that may have been okay for someone who's not a Roman citizen, because they have no real recourse. But Paul says, bang, I'm Roman. You sure you want to beat me right now? And they, I mean, look, they immediately drew back from him. I mean, can you see this? It's kind of funny in my head where they're, they're super powerful and they're going to beat this guy and he's going to tell them the truth and he pulls out his Roman card and they all physically move back away from him because if they were to do any of this to a Roman citizen, they could be executed. Rome defends its people. I imagine it used to be, and it is still in some places of the world, similar if you're an American, right? There are lots of places you can go in the world where you might be unsafe in one degree unless you're a U.S. citizen. And if you are, it's not worth it for those people to hurt you or me because America is going to kind of bring the hammer down. That's not always the case, certainly not everywhere, and it's probably less so today than it was, say, 30 years ago. But we understand what's happening here in a pretty tangible way because we are also a part of a nation or a citizenry that defends itself well. Rome is the same way. A Roman citizen's got the backing of Rome, and so they get to claim a few privileges that non-Romans don't get. One of them is they don't get to be harmed until they're condemned. The other that will be very important is if they need to, they can request to be tried in Rome. Ultimately, that's what's going to happen with Paul. Paul could have gone through a trial in Jerusalem. It's not that Roman citizens couldn't do that, but if Roman citizens requested a trial in Rome, that was their right. We were just in Israel last week, and you may know this, but any Jewish person anywhere in the world at any time can request asylum in Israel, and the nation of Israel will come and get them and bring them there. So if you're a Jewish person, because of its history, right? I mean, Israel was founded because, I guess, the Western nations were trying to make up for the Holocaust. I mean, was more or less what it is. And so they created a standard in which any Jewish person in any place in the world who feels threatened and needs asylum, the state of Israel will go pick them up from where they are and bring them to Israel for safety. In a way, it's kind of like what's going to happen here. Paul knows that he can claim this and be safe for a time. And at least he can have a trial in Rome. And so one question that's always interested me and I've never really gotten this answer straight, although there are some theories. Paul claims to be Roman. Couldn't anyone do that? So then what is it that Roman citizens had that somehow differentiated them? Some scholars think that Roman citizens actually had an actual thing they carried, whether that's a card or a paper or a, I'm not sure, and they're not sure, how someone like Paul 
born in Tarsus, a Jewish man, but still Roman, would have been able to prove his, his citizenship. But he had something, something that would have been virtually impossible to replicate that proved that he was, in fact, a Roman citizen. Otherwise, anyone would just claim it to be protected for a time. And so they had a system in which being a Roman citizen was important enough to where you had to prove it. And one of the verses that I skipped there, I think verse 28, says that the, um, the tribune himself said, my citizenship cost me a lot. And so we've discussed this already, but Paul was born a Roman citizen. It is very plausible that Paul's parents would have been in the employ of a Roman citizen at some point and would have been granted Roman citizenship upon the death of their employer, making any of their descendants Roman as well. That was common enough to where it's very plausible that happened to Paul's family. It wasn't super common, but it was known. That happened a bit. If a servant was well-loved and the owner of that servant ended up dying, that in their will they could grant not only freedom, but citizenship to those servants. All right, so ultimately, that's the end. We've gotten to the end of chapter 22. We've got a couple minutes, maybe one or two questions or observations that you need some clarity. So the comment is, hearkening back to the beginning, we're talking about the German tax for Roman Catholics. Um, you know, popes over, the, over time have not all been of high integrity. Um, agreed. Uh, you know, we're human, and we are, we are all going to fall short. And it takes each other to help lift us up. I mean, that's the point of a church, right? You've heard me say before that can you be Christian on your own? I mean, technically, yes, but it's not a good idea. Because none of us can do this well on our own. We need each other. We need each other to say to us with love, that's not the best of you. I mean, I, I say all the time, probably the number one thing I do in my role as a priest is remind people of who they want to be. Because everyone is stressed and everyone is worried and, and they can act out in ways that is not the best of them. And it takes someone who can say with kindness and love, that's not who you want to be. Rather than saying, don't do this or do that or all this stuff, if you can remind each other that we can be better than we are most of the time, that's a great way for a church to function. And we don't like that kind of stuff because it sounds very judgy, and maybe priests can get away with that, but we all should know each other well enough to know that we can hear someone say to us, that's not the best of you. Because we're rarely the best of us. We have moments, perhaps, but 98% of the time, we're not doing it as best as we can. And I think that that's part of what a church community can do is hold each other up, push each other higher and better over time. Because we genuinely want that. I mean, I think that's why we're here, is because we know we can be better 
closer to God, more an expression of the light of Christ in the world, and very few of us are ever able to do that on our own. We need each other to help us. And that's the vulnerability that we should have as members of this church community, rather than just celebrating all the good stuff, which is fine. Being there to help each other in our weakness is actually even better. So, thank you all. I'll see you next week. Good to see you.